All right, so here's the deal. I really hate holding a mic while I'm preaching. It really throws me off. So that is going to be perfect for today. And let me explain to you why. Um, uh, you may remember like two or three weeks ago or two or three months ago, I got diagnosed with COVID on Saturday. You guys remember that? And uh, Pastor James Granger had to step in to preach for me. Well, he has now paid me back that favor because he is sick and that's why I'm preaching. So I wasn't actually supposed to teach this week. So it's a double whammy. Uh, you're getting me... Um, a little unprepared, you're also getting me holding a mic, which is going to make today a whole lot of fun. So, a lot of grace? All right, good. So, all right, so here we go. We are in the second week of a four-week series going through Advent. And what Advent is, is this time that we celebrate Jesus coming to earth and Jesus one day returning to earth. And us talking about that, his, 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 his arrival on Christmas Day, his return one day in glory. And we're covering this through the four traditional weeks of Advent. And so the first week of Advent, we looked at hope, and then we looked at faith, and today we're looking at joy, and next weekend on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at peace. And as a reminder, we are moving all of our services from Sunday to Saturday next weekend, and what we did is we're attempting something. We always have people tell us, hey, um, I wish there was an earlier service, or hey, I wish there was a, a later service. And so what we did is we staggered our services across our venue. And so if a time at the venue you normally tend doesn't work for you, check out one of the other venues. So our Rio Town venue will have a 2 o'clock service. Westside will have a 2 and a 3.30. Holt will have a 4.30 and 6. And online will be 6. So anytime between 2 o'clock and 6 o'clock on New Year's Eve or on Christmas Eve, you should be able to find a service. And so today, we're going to talk about this Advent concept of joy. Now, joy is not a word that we often talk about a whole lot, except during the Christmas season. You know, when we plaster it on mugs and signs and Christmas ornaments and sing joy to the world. And so it's probably uh, important for us to define our terms of what we mean when we say joy. What is joy? Well, joy is not just happiness. It's not just pleasure. But if you look up the dictionary definition of joy, it says it is the idea of having the ultimate expression of both of those things, of happiness and pleasure despite the circumstances that you're facing. In fact, the Bible actually commands us to have joy. And it's one of those weird commands because the command to have joy happens in an unusual circumstance. It says in the book of James, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And so the actual command is when you are in a circumstance in life and things are not going the way that you would hope and dream that they would be, that you would consider that moment pure joy. Not just joy, but pure joy. And so I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what you're carrying into the Christmas season. I don't know what kind of trial you're facing, but the Advent story tells us that it is a time when we can consider it pure joy, where joy can transcend whatever is happening in the here and now. And so I would argue that joy ought to be one of the defining characteristics of a follower of Jesus because we have the greatest reason for joy. If you have your Bible with you uh, and two hands to operate them, um, um, you can flip, tap, or swipe your way over to Luke 
chapter 2. It's going to be interesting flipping today, so just bear with me. Uh, Luke 2, starting in verse 8, this is what it says. In the same region, shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over their flock. And so the setting here is telling us that this happens on the night that Jesus was born. That's the context in the same area where Jesus was born. It says, then an angel of the Lord stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Now, if you were here with us last week, you may remember that we talked a little bit about angels and it was fun because last week I said, I didn't want to steal any thunder from the people who were teaching this week, which was supposed to be James and and Hezekiah, one of our venues as well. And now I get to be here, so I stole my own thunder. So let's talk a little bit about angels, because I do think this is a season where we think about angels a little bit, and it's not something we normally think about. And I want to start with the obvious of what Scripture tells us about angels, and it's this. They are real. If you are a Christian, and if you believe that this book is truthful, then it's an unavoidable conclusion because angels are talked about quite a bit in Scripture. So what do we know about angels? Well, first of all, we know that they were created by God, and we don't know exactly when. We just know that it happened, had to have happened before the sixth day of creation. We know that much. Uh, we know that they're not humans. We know that when you die, you don't become an angel, and angels don't be become humans. They're different beings. We know that Satan himself is an angel. He's a fallen angel, but he's an angel. And so last week, we talked about the fact that we often have these images of what angels are, you know, from our Christmas trees and things like that. Well, our image of Satan is probably just as bad as our image of angels. We think about him as red with the horns and the pitchfork and the whole thing, but we're told in 2 Corinthians that he disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's possible that he actually looks more like your Christmas tree angel than an actual angel does, which by the way, don't go home and just stare at your tree and go, oh great, we have Satan on our tree. Don't do that. Um, But the idea here is that angels often in scripture have a human likeness. Um, but sometimes that human likeness is quite different. Like if you go in the book of Ezekiel, we know, we see angels in the book of Ezekiel, and and, and some of these angels had four faces. <laughs> One of them is human. And one was a lion, and one was an ox, and one was an eagle. And those, those angels that had the four faces, they also had four wings, and their feet were like calves' feet. And this is the Christmassy part, they did sparkle. It says they sparkled like bronze. We're also told that they're riding on or near a wheel sort of thing, which is a wheel contraption inside of a wheel. And, and I want to read you part of that because it's a great angelic description. I want you to picture these angels in your head. You got this? After we got all that, they got the four faces, four wings, calves' feet, and then it says this, their entire bodies, including their backs, hands, wings, and the wheels that the four of them had were full of eyes all around. Do you catch that image? Their entire body was covered with eyes, which is why someone from our church, Lisa Mattoon, sent me this picture of a scripturally accurate angel you can put on your Christmas tree at home. There it is. Isn't that great? My wife said, you're going to give people nightmares. But there you go. You put that on your your tree. Now, put that away. We don't want them staring at us in our eyes. Um, So then in Isaiah, we have another picture of a different type of angel with six wings, and they seem to only have one face. But most of the time, when angels appear in Scripture, they appear in a human male form that shows up in with such 
power and presence that people freak out like, like we saw last week with the angel Gabriel. That's the normal response. Now I want you to hold all of this crazy angel stuff in your head while we go back to the Christmas story, Luke 2 verse 9. It says this. It says, Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, this angel may have been the angel Gabriel. It is likely it was an angel that came in a human form that looked like a human um, being. But it wasn't just the angel that terrified the shepherds. Do you see it? It says, The angel of the Lord stood before them, and what? The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, we've heard that so often in the the Christmas story that we missed that piece. It was the glory of the Lord shining around them. What is that? Well, we see that all over Scripture. Let me give you one example all the way back in Exodus, where Moses is hanging out with God on the mountain, and this is what it says. In the appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintops. And so when the Israelites would look up at the mountain to where Moses is meeting, with God, it would look as if the entire top of the mountain was absolutely engulfed with flames. And so imagine this, the shepherds are out there at night, their flock has settled down finally to sleep for the night. It's chill, right? Nice starry sky, the whole thing like that. And then an angel appears, and not just an angel, but the glory of the Lord. It is like there is this, the entire field and and all of the sky is engulfed with flames. And in the midst of this inferno is this angel. No wonder they panic. But the angel wanted them to have a different reaction than fear. He wanted them to experience joy. We see that. Look at verse 10. He says, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid. For look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you, who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the multitude of the heavenly host with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. So imagine this. You've got the one angel. You've got the flames, the glory of the Lord shining. And then in the midst of all this, he says, we have come to bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. And then a multitude of angels shows up, fills the sky, and they begin to sing. And here's one of the things about angels. You'll see that they sing in scripture. You go back to the book of Isaiah. There's this, this image where the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But you know what they're, who they're singing it to? It says they're singing it to one another. And I wonder if when the Apostle Paul in Ephesians and the Apostle Paul in Colossians talks about the fact that we are to to exhort one another with hymns and songs and spiritual songs, if it's a reflection of the same thing, that the created beings, whether they be angels or they would be humans, that part of what we do is we sing for joy. And we sing in the presence of one another. So we're not just singing to God. We are singing to one another. We're exhorting one another. So when you sing in church, which I do encourage you to sing in church, when you sing in church, you're doing the same thing that the angels did in Isaiah, the same thing Paul commanded us to do in Colossians and Ephesians. We are singing with joy, instructional truth, encouragement to one another about who God is. And so the angel says, I bring you good news of great joy for whom? He says, for all people. The good news we proclaim about Jesus isn't just for a subset of people. It is for all the people. People who are like you. People who are not like you. 
people who believe the same things that you do, people who believe differently than you, country musicians, hip-hop artists, philosophers, database managers, liberals, conservatives, city dwellers, small town folks, Christians, Muslims, Jews, atheists, all of them get something out of this good news of great joy that will be for all people. How is that? How does the joy that, that, that Jesus brings good news for everyone? Well, I think it comes from an unexpected place. It comes from us. How do I mean that? Well, to see that, we have to go from the beginning of Jesus' earthly life to the end. We have to go from the first pages of Luke to the, the middle of John 15, John, where in John 15, right before Jesus is headed to the cross, he's giving final instructions to his guys, to his disciples. And this is what he says. Listen to what he says. He says, starting in verse 9, he says, As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. You see what Jesus does here? He takes two biblical concepts and he knits them together. The concept of love and the concept of joy. And Jesus says, I am telling you all of this so that you may have joy. My joy may be in you, he says, and that your joy would be complete. And I'm going to sound like a broken record in this thing, but we're going to say this over and over and over. Jesus's goal is that you would have joy, that you would feel and experience great happiness and pleasure despite circumstances. That's what Jesus wants for you. And he doesn't want you just to have a little bit of it. He wants you to have all of it. He wants you to have it so that it is complete in you. And where does that joy comes from? It comes from him. He says, I have said these things so that my joy may be in you. In other words, Jesus wants us to enjoy him. That's why we snuck that into our mission statement. <laughs> At Riv, we invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. In this passage, Jesus gives us a pathway to joy that connects joy and love. So let's walk down that path. Because no matter what you're going through right now, there's a connection here for you. What does he say? He says, as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. In 1 John, we're told that God is love. It is his essence. It's not just one of his character attributes. It's not just part of who he is. It is his very essence. And so what Jesus says is, God the Father has looked at me and turned his attention to me, and he has loved me. And then I take that love that he has given to me, and I turn around, and I give that to you. I give you the same fierce, uncompromising love of God. And so I want you to go back to that glory of God, to the flames everywhere, right? If that is who God God is, if it's the glory of who he is. In fact, one of the uh, translations says it's the splendor of his holiness. Another one says it is the radiance of his glory. And so imagine all of what makes God glorious. Well, if he is love, love is the thing that is glorious. And so think of that flame, that unquenching fire of love poured out from God to Jesus. He now pours out on us that same intensity of love that God has for the Father. He has for us. And so then Jesus says simply, remain in my love. 
Now, don't forget, Jesus has told us what he's talking about here is the pathway to joy. So what he's trying to get is for us to have joy complete. And he says, for you to have joy that is complete, you must remain in my love. Now, there will be people who will take this passage and they will use it as a clobber passage and they will beat the joy out of you. And they do it because of what Jesus says next. You see what he says next? He says, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commands and I remain in his love. And so what people will say to you is you have a a big stake to play here. You've got to obey Jesus. If you don't obey Jesus, you're not going to be loved by Jesus, right? You're going to, you're going to, so just watch out. You better get everything right. You better be perfect, right? You've, You've got a stake to play in saving yourself or keeping yourself saved. But that's misusing this passage because Jesus told us what this passage is about. This passage is what? That we, that his uh, joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is what he's saying. The flawed logic is that somehow we have something to do with us being saved or with us being loved. But Jesus is like, no, 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 I'm telling you these things so that you will have joy, complete joy. So let's look about that. Think about this. What does our world tell us is the key to joy. Don't say it out loud. Just think about it for a second. What do you think this world tells us is the key to joy? I think that this world says that the key to joy is to place ourselves at the center. Our world tells us to be truly joyful, we need to be true to ourselves. To be truly joyful, we need to look out for number one. And what Jesus does is he turns it completely inside out. He says, as the Father has fiercely loved me, I fiercely love you so that you will take my love and you will fiercely love others. The path to joy is not self-fulfillment. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What does Jesus say? He says, no one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. And you know, we hear that, we're all like Bruno Mars. We're like, I would throw myself on a grenade for you. I'd jump in front of a train for you, right? And we're like, yeah, there's people in my life that I love, and I'd I'd jump in front of the train, and it's easy to say you jump in front of the train until the train's coming down the tracks. And here's the deal. You might do it. You might jump on the grenade. You might jump in front of the bullet or the train. But what we don't do is we're not as easy to lay down our lives every single day in the little ways that we can lay down our lives for others. And as I was working on this message, I, I got a little crazy in the brain, so I apologize in advance. And I just decided to write what I'm calling, it's a, it's a new Christmas carol, The 12 Ways of Christmas. And what I mean by ways is, uh, this, these are the, the ways to lay down your life for your friends. And by the way, I got all 12 of these out of the Bible. These are simple ways that you can lay down your life for your friends, and this is a pathway to joy. Let me show them to you. First, go out of your way to meet a tangible need. Did you know that the early church's knee-jerk reaction to someone who had a need was they just met it? Did you know that? Our, our knee-jerk reaction is to figure out, well, we got to look at the circumstances, make sure everything's right, figure everything out. How's this going to impact me? No, the knee-jerk reaction of the early church, they saw a need. They took care of it. It, it, it impacted. They, they opened their, their homes and their wallets and their calendars for the sake of others, and it cost them. But they laid down their life for another. 
Another way you can lay down your life for another is to believe the best. Did you know in the Bible, in a definition of love in 1 Corinthians, we're actually told that love believes all things. Let me say that a different way. It means giving people the benefit of the doubt. Here's what I mean by that. Someone does something to us, let's just say it's on the range of annoying to hurtful. All right? So it's either annoying or it's hurtful. It's somewhere in between there. And they seem woefully, they, they don't realize they did it. Right? They're like just oblivious, woefully oblivious to the fact that they just did this thing to annoy or hurt us. What is our natural response? Believing the best means assuming the best possible motive on the part of that person rather than the worst. You know what we tend to do? We assume the worst possible motive in someone else and the best possible motive in ourselves. But we should flip that. We should assume that we're always getting it wrong <laughs> and that this person is trying, trying their best. I would argue that when we always go to the worst possible motive in other people, we betray that we don't really feel loved by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus. So here's the way you do that. It's simple. What you do is basically if someone does something annoying or whatever to you, um, or maybe even just hurtful t- towards you, and they, they do this, you think in your mind, is there any possible scenario that I can come up with that is a good reason for them to have done that. And once you figure one out, believe that one unless there's evidence to the contrary. Believe the best. Number three, don't gossip. This is what I've been working on lately. Gossip is um, when we have information about people, we reveal that information to people who have no business knowing that information or they can't do anything about it. And we usually do it in a way that makes us look good, them look bad. You know the last time I did this? Today, after I wrote this sermon. I literally caught myself doing this today, right? But it's something I got to work on. The Bible, you know what the Bible does? It lists the sin of gossip right in the list with other big sins like murder. Because that's what it is. It's character assassination. Number four, show up and shut up. You know this, don't you? Your friend is in need, they text you. Just drop what you're doing and be there for them. And talk less. Sacrifice your preferences. If you're a morning person, this, uh, and everyone else in your friend's circle is a night owl, guess when you're hanging out, right? <laughs> now, let me just give you an example from church, a couple examples from church, right? And, and, and these are gut checks, because sometimes our preferences become like commands in our lives, and they're just, they're just preferences. Imagine, you showed up this morning, and you were really excited to hear James teach, and then you saw me up here, and you're like, oh, crap, I gotta listen to that guy. Do a gut check. When you show up at church and the band that is on stage is not one that you enjoy their style, what is your reaction? Sacrifice your preferences. For every band that doesn't connect with you stylistically, there's somebody in this room that that is the band that leads them to worship God fully. Set aside your preference. The way you can do that is when you grab the doorknob of your apartment on the way out, Tell yourself, I'm going to lean into worship today, regardless of who's leading, who's teaching. I'm going in here to worship. Number six, talk about Jesus. Now, how is this laying down our lives? Well, pretty simple. Most of us are afraid to talk about Jesus because we think we're going to be made fun of. 
with our non-Christian friends or the people in our lives who are hurting and suffering, and we want to tell them about Jesus. We know all that Jesus has done for us. We know what he means to us. We know how he's, he's helped us and he's forgiven us of our sins and he's given us peace. He's given us joy, and yet we're afraid to talk about him. One of the ways you can lay down your life is just talk about Jesus. Lean in. Take the risk. Lean into the discomfort. Talk about him. Number seven, one of my favorites, decide that their quirks are endearing. Let me tell you what I mean by this. This is my favorite marriage advice. This is, the marriage advice is for free, but this actually applies to everybody. That thing that you find annoying in that other person. Now, there's no elbowing right now, and probably most of your marriages, you don't have any of those things. But imagine that there's somebody in your life that does something that just annoys you. It's not sin. They're not sinning against you. They're just annoying. Make the decision that that thing is cute. Decide that that thing is funny. That it's endearing. I, 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 I'm not lying. This is one of the best marriage tips I can give you. Convince yourself that this annoying thing doesn't bother you. It will transform your relationships with people. Now, I'm not talking about sin. I'm talking about quirks. With sin, there's a different way to lay down our lives. Gently restore and reprove. This week, a friend of mine called me and gently shared with me how the church, and by extension me, had hurt her. It was an act of love. Because she didn't have to do it. She could have just let it not be dealt with. But she, she took the risk. And she gently and lovingly reproved and restored. And number nine, forgive the small stuff and the big stuff. You know, when we forgive, what we're doing is we're giving up the right to get even with that person. And we have all been forgiven so much by Jesus. He not only didn't get even with us, he went to the cross for us. He who knew no sin became sin so that in us we might become his righteousness. If he did that for us, why wouldn't we be quick to forgive be so generous that you feel the pinch. This is the difference from being a tipper and a generous person. A tipper, anything that they give generously, and I'm not talking about church, I'm just talking about life. Church is part of it, but it's life. We're, we tip, we round up, it's a rounding error is, is how we're generous. I'm saying be generous in such a way that there's some stuff you can't do in your life because you're being so generous. That is laying down our lives for others. When we just drop a, a dollar in the, in, the, in the bell ringer's basket, right? That's all we ever do for generosity. We should be looking for places to be generous and going all in, not just with our money. One of the ways we can lay down our lives is to serve wherever the need is, not just where you want to serve. In the same way that generosity impacts our budget, our service impacts our calendar. And again, I'm not talking about church exclusively, but that is an example I can use because I can use that example, right? But we earlier we were talking about kids ministry and Riff Kids. I mean, and, and for those of you who are in the online service or at Holt, you know, Alex was talking about the fact that she came and served one time a month for a summer because she's like, well, I could do that for a summer. And then now she's been doing it for seven years. What happens is a lot of times we hear about something like kids ministry. We're like, there's no way I'm hanging out with kids. 
You know, I don't even like my own, right? Like, I, I didn't actually like junior hires until I had some, right? But I would ask, why wouldn't you? Like, our kids in our church, as an example, are, they're part of our family who spend most of their life in a culture that is training them to think about themselves first. And you, by laying down your preference and choosing to, to love them first, are modeling to them what Jesus has done for them. And number 12, relentlessly encourage. I've been thinking about this lately because it used to be me and it ain't anymore and I'm trying to make it who I am again. (laughs) Don't just encourage people a little bit. Relentlessly encourage. What I want to do is I want to start catching people not doing things wrong but doing things right. Instead of gossiping, I want to brag about how great people are doing to their face and behind their back. Can you imagine if we became a place that that's just who we were? Now, that's just 12 things I came up with really fast because I was putting together a teaching. There's probably better things on that list. There's probably worse things on that list. And, and this is just, I pulled these from one another's in Scripture. That's where these things come from. But here's the deal. This isn't easy. But I guarantee, I guarantee, if you start leaning into this, it will bring you joy. And your joy, while it may not be natural to be joyful... It definitely is contagious. And you start living with this kind of joy, laying your life down for others. There will be a connection between this love and joy that people will not be able to get enough of. And and here's where it gets tough. Jesus didn't just say we should do this for our friends. In this passage, he said do this for your friends. But he also said in Luke 6, but I say to you who listen, love your enemies, do what is good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. You can take every single thing that I just said in that list and do it not just for your friends, but do it for your enemies. You know why we do that? Because this is how Jesus chose to love the world. Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, then how much more having been reconciled Will we be saved by his life? Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand at the throne of God. Do you see that? It's amazing. For the joy set before him. Jesus is looking down. And what does he see? He sees the cross. A brutal instrument of death. It was the cruelest thing the Romans could come up with, and that's why they used it. He, he was looking down the, 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 at the cross and he was seeing that for the first time he was going to be separated from God the Father. He who, who, who knew no sin would become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, right? It's right there. He sees that he's going to be separated from God the Father. All of that is in front of him. And what does he see? Joy. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. Joy. For the joy set before him. You know what brought Jesus joy? Laying down his life for you because he loves you. So that he could call you friend. Jesus went to the cross and it was the joy for him to do it. So when the angels in Luke 2 declared, don't be afraid, but look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. They meant it. 
this good news of great joy was for all people because as, as we love people the way Jesus has loved us, as we lay down our lives the way Jesus laid down his life for us, as we tell them about the Jesus that saved us, what happens is we grow in joy and we pass that joy on to them and this relentless, fearless love of God goes through us and pours toward other people and it just expands the joy of everyone around us. It says in verse 15, when the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They're like, we're going to find that baby all swaddled up. And they hurried off and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby who was laying in the manger and seeing them, they reported the message they were told about this child. Imagine that, these dirty, stinky shepherds coming off the field, go in, they crowd themselves into the manger. They're like, you know what an angel just told us? What the glory of the Lord did? All these angels showed up and they were singing. It was crazy, right? You know what they told us? said, this kid is going to bring great joy to all people. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. And Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and meditated on them. And then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had seen and heard. They had just been just as they said. They just ran out of there with what? A joy. This is my prayer for our church, is that we would be this kind of a place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for these angels, and we thank you for these shepherds, and we thank you for this joy. We thank you that Jesus comes during the Christmas season, um, and he comes and brings good news of great joy, which will be for all people. And we just, we want to lean into that. In the coming days, in the weeks, in the months, in the years, make us a joyful community. Make us a loving community that lays down our lives for one another, for our friends, and for our enemies. Let us be known for that contagious joy that comes from loving others the way we've been loved. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.